Welcome back to another episode of Equity Matters. This is your host, it's JB3. And we're going to continue on our Equity in Action series for the folks who are joining us for the first time. Equity in Action is our way of amplifying the voices of the people doing the work. You know, people who are out in the trenches in their various facets of society. And we are hoping to pull together a range of speakers. And with that, one of the things that's always attracted me to equity is I think of it as the through line. It is the way that we connect different pieces with a similar lens. And so today I'm pulling on a a good friend now that we spoke a few times who can relate to some of the public health challenges that we've seen as of late, but brings a, a unique spin to emergency management. And so I'd love to introduce you all to Kali Richardson. Kali, how about you let the folks know a little bit about yourself and where you're from? Sure, thanks. First of all, thank you for having me and thank you for everyone for listening. Uh, I'm a proud graduate of the University of West Florida where I attained my bachelor's and my master's of public health degree. I'm currently a recovery regional coordinator for region six in the state of Florida for the Florida Division of Emergency Management. So it's in short, I just make sure that things don't go boom. And I can only imagine, you know, with emergency management, especially in the era of COVID, I'm sure you're covering a lot of explosions, a lot of booms in a lot of different places. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's, I kind of get to look at it from two different lenses. Like one as a professional looking at a lens of hearing people's complaints and their issues and the concerns with all the things that come out, rather be, you know, mask coverings or uh, we talk about CARES Act money or things of that nature. And I guess even from that lens, from the technicality standpoint, people don't understand, for example, all the sites that you see aren't run by the same people. So they're going to have different guidelines. And even the people working the sites don't realize that and it causes an issue. And then as a black male, as a business owner, is a different lens, right? How does this affect, you know, me and my business versus that of me as a, as a person? So it's always a very interesting struggle. So let's even take a step back. Let's define for our listeners emergency management, because for us, you know, we work in public health. It's something, especially right now, that we see kind of tossed around. How about you give a little bit of definition to the term and the science behind it? Yeah, so emergency management, and if it's not clear to, to everyone, trust me, I understand, I get it. Technically, by definition, by PPD-8, which is the uh, Presidential Directive 8 that we use for uh, emergencies in general, um, emergency management or emergency manager is technically filed as a first responder. You don't think of it because when you think first responder, you think police officer, firefighter, um, often military. Emergency managers are normally behind the scenes supporting those entities. So for example, uh, Hurricane uh, Isaiah that just came up the East Coast the other day. Once that happened, we were, I was deployed out to the East Coast of Florida to support a county in case the hurricane hit and supporting all the, the people you normally think about, right? So our county officials, police, fire, public works, things of that nature. And depending on what level you do emergency management in, it depends on what you do. If you're in a municipality or a city, you're primarily worried about that city. County, same thing. State, same thing. If you're with a private industry like a hospital and you're doing emergency management, you focus on that hospital. And each of the needs differ because of where you are on the size. Being on the state side, we're often giving resources and support while on the city side, they may be accepting that 
resources and support to, to operate effectively. So that's more or less what emergency management is in a nutshell. If you want a, a visual, look at, um, there's a movie, uh, I can't think of the name, a movie of the Boston bombing with Mark Wahlberg. And basically the FBI comes in and takes over the quote unquote investigation. That operational center they have is an emergency management EOC that they put together for that incident. Yeah, I totally hear that. When COVID first struck, in Michigan, you know, we were really quick to set up our state emergency operations center. And though I didn't spend as much time there, we had a community health emergency coordination center, our check. And I imagine it was the same kind of setup where there's multiple monitors. There's these different sections where you have like public health, you have epidemiology, you have toxicology, and they're all looking for different pieces of this puzzle when it comes to emergency response. Is that kind of what you're describing as well? And it, it definitely looked like something out of a movie. You know, you walk in and there's just like people running all over the place looking to get information. And you have these huge monitors with CNN on one TV or Fox or wherever trying to capture what's the latest. Yes, basically. So for what we in our SCOC or State Emergency Operations Center, there are, I never really counted, but it's wall-to-wall screens. You have every news outlet. You have, for example, COVID, we have the hospital threshold where they are, how many beds they have available, our test sites, where are they at? We may have, because it's hurricane season, you know, the meteorology on one screen, let us know currently tracking that, weather on another screen. And it's just, Instead of having, it's like having multiple tabs on a computer, but on every TV screen in the room. And we have ESFs. So like for you being a DOH, your ESF-8 mass care, you'd have a section. Then we'd have this 14 ESFs. So there's at least one person in each one of those categories to operate in response to and to recover from emergencies. And that goes everything from forest fire, active shooter, natural disaster, hurricane, it can even be a marathon. A marathon is technically incident. And EOCs look over that to make sure people are okay because you're putting, well, before COVID, you're putting thousands of people together and that could be a soft target. Sure. And so we have to think about those things to make sure that people can go about their daily lives doing whatever they, they choose to do and not have to worry about is it safe. Um, we're kind of that, that buffer in the shadows of, you know, protection in a sense. And that's a lot of weight in being the buffer, right? So when you are the first line of defense, how do you factor in diversity, equity, and inclusion into a what-if type situation? Because you're managing a thousand different potential scenarios. Could you tell us a little bit about how that's demonstrated in your work? Uh, when it comes up to that, I think it, it, it differs, right? So emergency management didn't really become a profession until after 9-11. When 9-11 hit the country, emergency management basically shot to the top of the list of things that needed to be ready to go in case something serious like this happens again. And so when we look at it from a diversity standpoint, most before this 9-11 incident, most of the people who are in these emergency management roles were retired fire, PD, SO, and that's fire. For those of you who don't know, fire department, police department, sheriff's, sheriff office, are kind of grandfathered into these roles. Now it's becoming more of a profession. You have students who are going to school to learn these things like I did. 
and I'm a, I don't have a history of a cop or a firefighter anything like that and I'm going into this role from a purely academic standpoint and unfortunately like most things white collar governmental it's primarily a white industry right it's going to be a mass majority of white males white females with a couple of minorities in between even in my division um i think there are four or five out of a off out of a building of 300 400 there's only four or five black people who work for the division that's not security mm. or janitorial staff and that lack of diversity can be a a real challenge. I mean, you look at different organizations and you start to look at the hierarchy, you start to immediately realize who isn't in the room and who doesn't have a seat at the table. Anytime that I'm looking at an organization that I'm even slightly interested in, one of the first things that I do if it applies is go to their board of directors website. I need to know which who's making the decisions behind the scenes. And that's even beyond looking at the administrative leadership. It's having a good sense of how do you approach diversity? Like I care less about your, your impact statements on the website. I want to know how it's demonstrated and how you're operationalizing it. And in respect to emergency management in particular, how are you all managing that? You know, you have to make some very critical decisions that will impact thousands of lives when there's a lack of diversity. What, what do you do? Oh, uh, well, to be honest with you, I'm too low on the totem pole. As far as, since I'm in field ops, I'm out in the field, and I'm not at the state EOC often, and um, I'm pretty confident that, you know, our cert chief and everybody else who works in state does everything they can with the information they have available to them to support all communities when possible, but I think the issue is not only because there isn't enough diversity, but out of those who are diverse, we may not be in positions to voice that opinion if something came up. Right. So, for example, um, I'm in a couple other organizations in general, and because of my position, I basically have a list of all the chess sites in the state that's supported by the state. And so with my, you know, with permission, I was able to share that information, say, hey, can you get this out to all of our communities? Let everybody know that even if they don't know, because often it's just a lack of information. Here's a list by county of every single test site in that county. And if you just share this information outside the news, um, put it on radio stations, put it on social media, put it in these places, most likely more people will be able to get tested. People will at least have the idea of knowing if they have or have not contracted disease, if they do or do not have it. And just one of those four solutions, mentally and emotionally, can relieve a lot of stress. And just us being locked in and having to deal with not only being underserved, being in, you know, red line communities. We still have the ongoing issue of police brutality with those issues. And it just kind of, it's like, it just keeps going, man. So it's, it's one of the things where you, you fight, you climb and you put yourself in a position to not only be the change you'd like to see, but also create a pathway for those to come behind you to pick up the torch whenever it's time for you to put yours down and carry on the mission. The first time I ever joined someone on a podcast, that was definitely the point that I wanted to drive home was this idea of pipelining and creating paths for others. And it's, it's essential to the work that we do, especially when we're talking in community, that not only is there representation now, there's representation beyond. 
And so I, I want to shift gears just a little bit. I was reading an article not too long ago and it had this line in here. So I just want to run it by you. Just get your perspective. It said that disasters do not discriminate. People do. Facts. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, I don't know. You said that when you got that, but said that to me. Yo, it's facts. I mean, at the end of the day, rather it's a hurricane, uh, forest fire, whatever. It doesn't care who you are. Or even, for example, let me take a step back. Someone had called me. Um, a few weeks ago, late at night, it's like 11 o'clock at night, and they're like, we, we don't talk, but they call me, and they're like, what's your opinion on COVID? And I was like, it's a disease, we need to, you know, prevent it, and get past it as quickly and effectively as possible. That's a textbook, a textbook answer. I'm like, I do have a master's in public health and a grad cert in infection control, so you're going to get what, like, what I know, like, as a professional, that's what it is. Oh, well, I just think they gave me, you know, the conspiracy and the political and all that jazz. And I was like, look, bro, I don't care. <laughs> the disease doesn't care at all. If you have lungs and you're in range, a virus is going to attack you to survive and mutate and grow. Like, that's the science behind it. I'm not here to, to talk, you know, MSNBC versus Fox or CNN versus, you know, whatever other outlet there is about the political issues to it and often we see the discrepancies or the inequities in communities because the people making decisions are have unconscious bias or lack the awareness of what this could mean and i'll leave you with this, this one last example um even in the hurricane 90 percent of the time no one thinks about the homeless when it comes to a hurricane but because it's covid now if the shelters if the counties open a shelter where does the homeless where did the homeless go? Yeah. They can't con they can't congregate. Honestly, that may have been the first bit of guidance that I had to write was actually for congregate settings. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Exactly. So now there's a population there that, you know, is basically left left outside, like no pun intended. And so when we're looking at that when it comes to, you know, racial inequality. I mean, we all know studies and the history of systemic racism and uh, redlining and all the other things that have happened in American history that have given people of color of all shades um, a, a lower step on the totem pole and a higher incline to climb just to be on the same playing field as their, their caucus or Caucasian counterparts. And so I'm glad that you brought up like the differences in status or differences where people end up as a result of some of these obstacles. But could you dive a little bit deeper into the barriers that you see from your from your vantage point? Um, in my work, I mean, I, I think of it as kind of like going to a PWI versus going to HBCU. Bruh, I went to a PWI. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> So um, <clears throat> I think that's, it's kind of the same way. Like there's just been experiences where, and I'm pretty sure people mean well, right? At least I, I like to think people mean well. And I don't think they would uh, deliberately <clears throat> say certain things in front of me just cause. But, you know, it's just like those, um, there's, there's a book I read a long time ago that talks about the 100 most ignorant things that smart people never mean to say. Oh, you're talking about when, people make it difficult to assume positive intent. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of the standpoint 
is that I may be talking with a colleague in, in the field and they may make a comment that they think they're connecting with me and they're like, oh, ha, kiki. And I'm like, why would you say that? A simple term like, oh, you know, they're working us like slaves. I'm like, bro, you're white. What do you mean working you like slaves? Help me understand. Because of my role as a, as a state employee, or as a, a young professional on top of that, it's kind of one of those like, you have to pick your battles by picking your conversation. Mm. Because you know how state government is, right? And so um, in my field, you don't need a doctorate, but I'm going to get mine. Amen. Or they're like, oh, well, you don't need it. You know, you just need experience. I'm like, that's, that's cute and all. But like as a person, I've always told myself I'm going to get a doctorate, number one. And then number two, because I'm in the field and when someone wants to try me, I'm going to remind them it's Dr. Richardson, not whatever you were going to say before. Hey, put some respect on this man's name. And if I go, I feel like I have to go above and beyond because there are certain doors that are open to you once you reach the highest levels of education. You have certain points of personal privilege, as Robert's Rules would say, to make a standpoint because of the research that you've done. And I kind of look at it as we're fighting, you know, a war. And a lot of wars aren't short. So I have no problem losing a couple of battles where I may be uncomfortable now. Because I don't know their bias, right? I don't know if they're doing it intentionally. I don't know if they're doing it unintentionally. If it's not something, you know, straight out blatant and attacking or offensive, if it's bad, I'm like, hey, don't say that again. Like, I'll, I'll let you know. But if it's something where I'm just like, mm, I could be, you know, being a little Huey from the boondocks right now. Let me just kind of pump my brakes. Yeah, I'm, I'm too, too black out here right now. Yeah, I have, bro. I, sometimes I just I feel like I be in those moments. I don't I don't try to be, but I'm just like, well, technically. <laughs> ah. So we just gotta take a deep breath and step back sometimes. But there's definitely a, like like you said, going to PWI, just you know, being around a lot of people who aren't in your culture. And then for me, it's a little bit more complex because not only am I African American by the one percent of rule in America, but if I leave America, I'm West Indian. Like. My my dad is 100% West Indian from Dominica. My mom is half black, half Puerto Rican. So now we're talking cultural identities. I was born and grew up in the West Indies and the Virgin Islands, came to America. So it's like cultural identities that you struggle with, like different laws when it comes to like respect and uh, greetings and conversations and things like that. And so it's like those dynamics mixed in with like the racial dynamics you pick up from like American culture and how do you navigate these things? And what does that look like for professionals who are not only African-Americans, but other minorities that have other issues that may go into that mix as well? So what you've described to me, at least, is you know talking about some of those barriers as far as individual and interpersonal, right? What about when we start to move upstream or we start talking about things like government mistrust. You know, if there's something that's happened in the past, some historical relationship that has gone south. You know, even with me working in Michigan, I often think about what happens when people start reflecting on Flint. You had an obvious instance where people could have done more or did not do enough and it's damaged relationships for who knows how long. 
Uh, I look at it from, from two folds. Fold one being the personal approach, right? So, for example, within my team, within my division, uh, which is recovery, building those relationships there. And if I don't have trust within my own division, I kind of look at it like, like playing soccer, right? I played soccer in college. And so if I'm a striker up front attacking the goal, I can't attack 100% if my team behind me isn't supporting me. Because if I go too far up to attack and I don't score, when I turn around, all the distance that I travel, I now have to travel back and then some to defend. But if my team moves with me, whenever it's time to defend, I can rest and do my job as an attacker. But there has to be a trust there just within the team. So that's my first approach is trying to build that, that camaraderie and that team functionality within my own uh, workspace and, and colleagues. When it comes to the community, I think it's mostly assumptions versus facts, uh. right? There, there are some things that happen that it's just wrong. I mean, you, you, can't, you work for the government as well. Like it's above you, like I didn't make that decision. The powers that be made that decision, right? I'm just here to make it happen. And so you have, you have kind of that standpoint, but also, for example, I'll get calls from, I don't know, just people in the community who are like, hey, where are my, uh, my test results, my COVID test I took a week ago, and this is a sham, and this is a conspiracy, and this, that, and the third. I'm like, listen, ma'am, sir, I don't have your results. Straight up, like you have to call the lab. I don't have them. I need calls too. That's why I'm laughing. Yeah, I I can't help you. Call the lab. Oh, what we did? They're not picking up. Of course, they're not picking up. They're running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Not only running COVID, but every other test that still has to happen from from just medical practices. So I can't. There's there is no solution for you, and that's just the that's the meat and potatoes of the situation. Oh, what's conspiracy? Well, ma'am, that's not my job either. You feel that way? Talk to the PIO. That's their job. My job is to know that factually and data-wise, there is a disease. Now, depending on how bad or not bad it is, may be up for debate, but it's here. So my job is to make sure it goes away as quickly, effectively, and make sure that the minimum amount of people are affected by it. That is all. I actually received a call, I feel like, like a, a few weeks ago where a gentleman was like, I need your address because I haven't been able to visit my mom in the nursing home. And the governor has made these decisions. And because you're a state employee, you need to be held accountable for these costs. And I'm just like, I'm so sorry that you haven't had a chance to see your mom. Clearly, you need that level of nurturing. But I'm not your guy. And the governor's decision, she's actually trying to keep you safe. I mean, it, it sounds really messed up and kind of cold-hearted, but I understand people getting upset because of the changes that have happened. For example, I had a, um, a frat brother of mine who was in a really, really bad accident and actually lost his girlfriend. And he was in a hospital close to my area than from where his family was. So as soon as I heard about it, you know, I go to the hospital. I'm like, bro, I'm coming. Like, you have to say anything else. And I'm going to check on him every single day because the hospital's like, I drive past it for work every day. So I'll go check on X, Y, Z, but they can only have one visitor because of COVID. And so it's like, it's fine. I'll just still stop by. If his mom isn't here, you know, I'll just check on her. If she is here, I'll just let her know I'm here if she needs anything and keep it moving. For a lot of families, that's difficult, right? What if it's like a mother sick and there's two kids or 
a husband and you know does the husband go does the, does the kid go does the kid's an adult what does that look like and so I understand the mitigation practices to lower you know the chance of infection versus that of like social norms and people being uh, the type of creature that you know need physical contact and communication to be together but there's also the facts of the situation is that when it comes to money and practices we can only pick a side based off of what has previously happened. Last time something like this happened was 1918 Spanish flu, if I'm not mistaken. We don't have anything like that in a contract anywhere. So you can make an argument in the court of law, but guess what? You've already signed your deal with the ALF, assisted living facility for those of you who are listening, that this is what they're responsible for and what you're responsible for. End of story. And so, again, it sounds messed up and cold-hearted, but sometimes you have to take just like the, the logical and the database approach just to get to a solution and work from there. Because if you just try to go in what should be right, we'll never get anywhere. Listen, I, I feel that because you think about the way that we live now. We live in a now generation. People need responses, reactions, feelings now. And that's difficult to mitigate in situations where you need to be calculated, where you need to take into account all the data that you have. And especially like in in your role, people are relying on you to make sound decisions and you can't rush into the now, especially if you're talking about recovery. You want to make sure that's in line with what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, recovery is perhaps the greatest part of emergency response response plays a large role yes i wouldn't say it's everything only because if we are you know proactive in our in our preparation then the response would be shorter which means the recovery would be shorter and overall there would be less damage to any particular thing that we cannot quote unquote foresee for example a fire if we're always practicing, you know, places that have high fire risk, preparing for that, just in case something happened, make sure that, you know, all the cogs in the machine are trained and oiled and ready to go in case this happens. When it does happen, they'll get there faster. When they get there faster, the response is shortened. Once that happens and, you know, less damage happens, then people like me from recovery can come in and do start doing assessments and start talking to FEMA about money and where is it going to come from and is it going to be a 75, 25 type of thing? It's going to be a state of emergency. What does that look like? And start supporting the counties and supporting the cities and even the individuals with assistance to make sure that they can, you know, have a home to go back and sleep in. Or if they don't have a home because their home burned down, they have a hotel or other options. And so response does play a very large role, but all parts of emergency management, preparedness, response, recovery, mitigation and planning all play a, a critical role in the overall reaction or recovery of any form of incident. So we have a, a pretty wide range of listeners. I mean, we're talking about CEOs, we're talking about grad students, we're talking about grassroots community organizers. I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to drive home your message. What, what is the one thing that you want to make sure that people take with them from this episode? I think the biggest thing that I would want to drive home for anybody who's listening is that no matter your field, no matter your profession, there's definitely times where you have to make a decision between your money and your morals. 
And that's always a tough decision. But regardless of what it is, make sure that you get sleep at night based on your decision. And like you were saying earlier in the conversation, we're in a right now society and people are, are impatient. They're used to getting what they want almost instantaneously. And we have to be able to sometimes play the long game to get what we need for our communities. And if we're not in a position where we can help directly our communities or help people that look like us, that come from where we come from, get the opportunities just to know, for example, emergency management. I didn't know where emergency management was until like 2018. I had no idea. Took a class and I was like, wow. I've been doing this all my life and I never knew this is what it was called. Didn't know it had a name. Didn't know it had a name. Didn't know it was a, it was a profession. Oh, y'all just gave me a career. Oh. <laughs> a whole science <laughs> yeah. Listen, so like, I, and so I think just exposure, um, especially, and you know how it is with public health, exposure and starting early opens a lot more doors for, for people in general because they can get, you know, most roles with, uh, with their associates. They can get some roles in the DOH or even my division with, out of high school. It may not be, you know, what we do particularly, but it gets you in the door. It'll start getting you, you know, the benefits or connected to people who can get you into better paying and more opportunistic type of roles as you climb that metaphorical ladder. Because in EM, there isn't a ladder. Like, it's not like, oh, I'll work here and then, you know, I'll get a promotion. Nah, it's not like that at all. It's literally... There's also oh many jobs, and unless somebody retires, gets fired, or quits, you have to be ready for the opportunity when it comes in. Like, I was volunteering for a year and a half, applying every day to every job posting in the Southeast. Until I found one that, was, that one, gave me an offer, and then two, I was like, yes, I can do this. Took that offer, where I'm at now, and, you know, I'm already planning what comes next, education, experience, working on certifications, so that, you know, in a few years, when it's time to make that move again, when, and now that I'm in the realm, I'm communicating with other professionals, they're not like, oh, who's this, who's this, who's this Richardson guy? Like, who's he? They're like, oh, I know him. He works for such and such and such and such. And that alone, that recognition of, I know who this person is, at least in my field, turns it from a no pile to at least a maybe pile. Oh, yeah. And oh, if yeah. you do a good job, it's automatically a yes pile. They're like, oh, yeah, he's good. Like, I've been offered, like, three jobs, four jobs, I think, because I got in this role. They're like, oh, you have a master's in public health? Come you on You a health officer? <laughs> yeah. Quick. I'm quick. They're like, oh, what's up? I'm like, bro, I'm, like, I'm at work right now. They're like, yeah, but do you want a job? Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, straight up, they're just like, and they're just throwing them out there because the people who make the, make the decisions – you know, I sit at the table with them every day. Um, I'm not talking to uh, Philip, who's our regular firefighter on the truck. I'm talking to the battalion chief that's over X number of houses. I'm talking to, you know, the city emergency manager director who oversees the entire city's operations or the police chief or, you know, these other high, you know, ranking officials. When we're talking military, I'm with the sergeants and the majors and the first lieutenants and they're like, I don't know all the soldiers that I work with, but I do know their, their, their COs. Mm. So I talk to them every day. And so now that I'm in that role, which is a blessing, there's also been 
a lot of opportunities and I feel like a lot of responsibility that comes with that to in the best way possible. And I say best way as far as the most constructive and the most transparent way to share those little opportunities, those little nuggets to further open the vision of my less melanated colleagues to just certain instances. Because they would be like, I remember myself and another gentleman who's a first lieutenant, we were just going back and forth having, you know, island kid stories of, you know, what it was like growing up on our islands and, you know, mm-hmm. the things that we had to go through. And and we're laughing about it, you know, because we're grown now. We're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's whatever, blah, blah. And everybody else in the tent was shook. They're like, well, what do you mean? The <laughs> Civil <laughs> War. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're like, what? Hands getting cut off? I'm like, yeah. like Things happen. Is that, is that not a thing in America? Like, people not cut off hands here? Like, what are you talking about? Um, and so, even though him and I were sharing those stories and we were bonding, everyone in the space got awareness of it's just not a place to go vacation, right? There's like, these are serious issues that we're facing with right now. Or even with uh, Isaiah that came past the hurricane, people were like, oh, well, um, hopefully it's the hit us, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, bro, it already hit me. My, my island got 95% rain for three days. So like, my community already got hit. And I can't do anything about it. And because of the field I'm in, I can never be home if there was an emergency. I have to go to work. So from a family standpoint, what am I going to do, you know, with, with whoever my wife will be in the future or my kids? Or how does that look? What's the plan for that? Do I send them to my mom's house? Like, do we have a shelter at home plan? Like, what, like, what does that look like? Because I won't be there to protect my family. And I'd like to be because I have to go protect the people. I think in many ways, COVID has been a great example for having to make those decisions because in the beginning, March, April-ish, I was actually planning to go defend my research at USC, you know, flying out to California, my flight was canceled. And so I had to alternatively make a decision on if I was going to stay home to defend or go to a hotel room. And that was during the, the peak surge for COVID within the state. So selfishly, and also just because I wanted to be able to think in a quiet space, I wanted to go to the hotel to do that. But also realizing, like, I can't protect my family from the hotel, man. I need to be right there just in case something happens. We don't know what's going on with this virus. And so I say all that to say that there's there's going to be many times for the people listening that we're going to have to make decisions like that where am I going to step out to be the professional that I want to be in the long term? Or is this more a matter of, I need to be here in the now. This might be a small sacrifice, but I'll bounce back. Money or morals, man. It's, it's a tough decision that I know a lot of like public health and medical practitioners and emergency managers have to make decisions on every day. And there's no right answer. Sometimes you got to protect your pocketbook. That's bill got to be paid. And other times you may be able to take a little hit to uphold your morals. I'm not going to tell you which one to pick or when to pick them, but we all got to sleep at night somehow. Definitely. Definitely. And that's good advice for the, like the students listening, right? 
the people who are getting ready to transition from academia to the their first career it's good to know those people in high places like it's great to know your colleagues but get to know the people that your colleagues report to because those are the people that are going to remember you that are going to be able to help you find positions later in life so thanks for definitely dropping that nugget yeah and let me say one more thing to the students because i have a special place in my heart for them i need the students to understand the organizations that you're involved with in college the clubs that you participate in, they are directly correlated to you as a professional. If for whatever reason I'm working with you as a student and you don't show up on time, you're not dressed in the right attire, like you don't have basic fundamental skills, it's gonna be very difficult for me, someone who wants to give you a job or wants to put you in a position to get a job, if you're gonna make me look poorly. I can't give you that opportunity because if you burn the bridge, no one else can walk across it behind you. Mm, that's a word. So let me just get to students because students be quick to be like, oh, well, no one helps us out. I'm like, bro, you showed up to the meeting out of attire. Like you were 15 minutes late every time and you always had an excuse. Help me help you. I honestly couldn't tell you how many times a mentor or somebody I admire and respect has sent me a job opportunity and sometimes it's on the strength of they vouched for me that I'm like, all right, I got to get my stuff together and make sure I'm ready for this because they might not send me anything else, you know, because the conversations that happen behind the scenes when the reviewer talks to the my mentor, they're like, you sent him over here? Who is he? Where, where did he come from? I, I don't ever want that to be the conversation that people have. I want them to be like, yeah, I sent that guy. He, he's a good dude. He, he's ready for it. So that's definitely something that we all have to keep in mind, especially, you know, we're talking relationships for people of color trying to navigate these systems. We can't let each other down in that way because the opportunities just are few and far in between. We have to show up and be prepared. Now, Kali, it's been good having a chance for us to wrap, to catch up. And I want to make sure that I give you a quick plug here how can people keep up with you and the things that you're doing? Because I know you got a lot, your hands in a lot of different places. Uh, you can keep up with me on KaliRichardson.com, K-A-L-I Richardson.com, at official Kali Speaks on Instagram or Kali the Poet, both one word. And other than that, I mean, look me up on LinkedIn, man. Kesley Richardson is the government name that he put on the checks. <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> I'm there. Hey, man, definitely keep your head up down there. I know your natural disasters look a lot different than mine um, in the Midwest. You know, we get a, f a foot of snow and people forget how to drive. But I'd much rather have that than a hurricane any day. Hey, same, same to you. Um, I'm always safe. if you need anything, a phone call away, but you can keep the snow. <laughs> I keep that. no, that's, that's fine. I, I think I've gotten used to it, but my wife is trying to take me down south. So we'll see. <laughs> well, God, good luck and Godspeed. I hope that you all have enjoyed today's episode of Equity Matters. I'm looking forward to bringing you all more on the Equity in Action series. Also, I'd like to give a plug for our social media. Please follow us, Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram. Um, I think we've got something really special going, and I'm really excited to see what's coming up for us. And, of course, you already know, Equity Matters. Equity Matters.